I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. COVID-19's impact on the early education sector has meant that we've been having advocacy conversations that we didn't expect to be having at the start of 2020. The government's implemented free early education, but only for a short time. Early childhood educators were seen as frontline workers, but not supported properly. Will this be a brief moment before we get back to normal, or have things changed for good? Australia has had lots of changes to our early education system before today, thanks in no small part to advocates and feminists who pushed for fairer and more equitable policies and systems. What does that history tell us about what's happening today? Joining Lisa and myself to discuss that question is one of Australia's leading advocates for social reform, Eva Cox. Eva, welcome finally to the Early Education Show. (laughs) Yes, we've been having the technology difficulties that make this an interesting conversation. <laughs> well, welcome finally tonight. But I should say, I mean, we're uh, four years into this podcast, Eva, and I'm embarrassed and slightly shocked it's taken this long to get you on. I think speaking for myself, but I know probably speaking for Lisa and Leanne as well, um, have certainly been an advocacy inspiration for us and for, for the show. So I'm really looking forward to this chat. Yes, it's interesting when the uh, announcement was made about free childcare, I got a phone call from an ex-student of mine who's now fairly high up on The Guardian, and she said, I saw the heading free childcare and I knew exactly who I had to ring. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote an article for The Guardian saying, you know, the dream of the 1970s. (laughs) Well, that's... That's probably a good place to start. Probably so, a reasonable starting point. Yes, that definitely. So for for the like, I can't imagine there's too many people who are listening to our show, either who aren't familiar with you in some way. But why don't you sort of you know take us through a brief history of your sort of background with working with early education? Well, it came out of uh, both a mixture of sort of my feminism and very and my own personal situation. I mean, in the early in the nineteen sixties. I had a daughter and a couple of years later split up with her father and was left with this small child and the need to sort of earn money. My husband wasn't very good at it. That was one of the reasons for splitting. So I managed to talk my way into a family, uh, one of the very few childcare services that, was, that were around, which was a Sydney Day Nursery one at Bondi Junction. I knew a bit about childcare, which was very useful because I sort of could talk to the director like equals, and I'm sure that's the main reason I managed to wangle my daughter in against a very long list of people waiting for childcare because it really was extremely short, which gave me an enormous sense of guilt. And that's one of the reasons I got involved in childcare advocacy when I joined the Women's Electoral Lobby in 1972, which was then the very exciting new out to sort of try and change the world feminist group it was formed just around the time, just before the Whitlam election. And childcare, I knew quite a lot about, as I said, because I'd had six months of sort of childcare training, Waverley Childcare Policy, Childcare, sorry, Childcare College, and had realised it was not for me and repeated my leaving certificate so I could get into university, which I did the following year. But I was very much aware of what went in the children's services area. And being a single mother, I was very much aware of the need for services for people like myself. 
So when I got involved in politics, it was high on my agenda and I pushed fairly solidly. And 1972, for the people that don't know their Australian history, was the year that we got rid of the conservative government we'd had since 1949, which is a liberal country party, as it then was. And uh, Whitlam came in at the end, and because he'd had a very solid lot of lobbying from me and various other people about childcare, they picked up on childcare. They had preschools on their agenda because they were nice and respectable, but childcare was a bit controversial because there was still quite a rump of people that decided really mothers should stay home with their children, despite the fact we now had the pill and were moving rapidly back into the workforce sort of very new news for people who didn't realise that it was quite so late that people started taking an interest. So the departing sort of Conservative government had actually brought in some childcare funding for the teachers' salaries, I think it was, of a couple of preschool trained teachers for childcare services. And that, but that was the first sign since the war. We'd actually had quite a good childcare service in the wartime. And anybody who lives in the inner west, in the Sydney area, can still find some old childcare centres that were put up so that women could actually put their children there during the war and go off and make munitions and other things. So this has echoes of what happens now when they want women, they suddenly provide childcare, but then they stop funding it at the end of the war. So this was the next attempt. And the Whitlam government was interested, give them their due. They did, and they brought in various childcare funding things throughout their fairly limited time. But I can still remember before the 1974 election, uh, when Whitlam ran again to try and get a majority, that I, together with Lyndall Ryan, who worked in the priority review staff and other people, lobbied very solidly for extra childcare funding, and there was quite a boost to the provision of childcare, not just preschools, which they were doing quite nicely on at that stage. But then 1975, Whitlam lost power, lost the election. Fraser came in and gave him his due. He was not too bad on childcare, but it was sort of stuck there. But it was very much part of that women's movement stuff. We knew that women wanted to get into the workforce, but we also knew that kids actually needed people. I'm quoting, you know, various, was the anthropologist who said, you know, children need a village to raise a child and or a whole culture to raise a child. And this whole idea of making children stay at home with their parents and particularly with their mothers was probably not all that good for them. So we had that behind us. But it did go quiet for a while, and in 19, what was it, 1981, I worked in Canberra for 12 months with a shadow minister for social security who's had childcare in his portfolio, and that was very nice. I'd been the director of NCOS, so we'd done a big survey proving that childcare was desperately needed. And we needed a planning model of childcare. And childcare at that stage was funding for not-for-profit centres. Remember this. This is a, an unusual term to hear these days. Not for some of us, and... it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've heard the thing. But the whole idea was that childcare was going to be a community service. It was for children. It was for mothers to be able to have some free time. But it was generally for the benefit of the whole community. And Whitlam started it. Fraser, to give him his due, sort of continued in that vein. 
And then when Hawke came in, by that stage I was no longer working in Canberra, but what I'd done was right, sort of policy that was being pushed up at that stage. And I managed, together with two friends who were all at that stage in the Labour Party, we managed to get them to accept the fact that they needed a planning model for childcare. It couldn't just be a... Uh, submission-based policy, because that's what you had to do those days to get money, was write a submission explaining why you needed a childcare centre, and if you wrote a good submission, you got it. But that was quite hard. It was particularly hard in the areas where people really needed childcare, but didn't have people that were very good at writing submissions. I was pretty good at it, so I got an after-school care thing running, which was my another one of my contributions to this area of setting up the first ever federally funded after-school care at Glenmore Road Public in the 70s and 74, I think that was. So, as I say, sort of still trying to get things going in a way. And the Hawke government, to give them their due, funded a lot of childcare, started a planning program and so on. One of the things when I was working in Canberra just the year before I left, and that was the year before Hook got in about a year and a half after I left. But at that stage, there was a push from the Conservative government, from Fraser's government, to actually fund commercial childcare. And I can remember running around Parliament House furiously raising people to say, no, we don't want to commercialise childcare, do not commercialise childcare, and we stopped it. However, unfortunately, this was the time when neoliberalism was beginning to creep into the system. And when Hawke and Keating, who was his treasurer, took over, they were doing various deals and we had the sort of various deals that were being done with business and with other people. And Keating, for all his good sides, was unfortunately a neoliberal. He liked the idea of privatising and he got into a bit of a panic in the late uh, 80s about the fact that Funding was going, at that stage, you were funded with two lots of money, one of which was a proportion of your teacher's salaries, which was a sort of basic funding for the centre. And the other one was fee relief for families, which was means tested. So poor people got more fee relief than rich people, which was, you know, a reasonable way of distributing at that stage. But that so went to the centre, didn't it? It went to the centre, and the, and it went to centres on the basis that they signed a contract. This has to be remembered, because this is the point I keep trying to explain to people. There was a direct contract between the federal government and the funded centre, which said, you have to give us a copy of your, uh, you know, your, your accounts. You have to show us how much you're going to charge for fees, We'll have an agreement on fees. We'll have an agreement on locations to make sure that they're not in places where there's children, which wasn't necessary after after this. And we also they also had to agree as a certain mix of of ages because a, a lot of centres found the costs of having children under the age of three was actually quite high. So we wanted to make sure that there were always places for babies. And this went through, as I said, till the late 80s, when Keating started feeling sorry for all of those poor, not for pro- uh, for-profit services. Now, in those days, and I just looked up some statistics today, there were a lot of, and there still are quite a few, 
services which were run often by teachers, people who had early childhood education. They were very much neighbourhood centres. They were very much part of their neighbourhood, but they were for profit, so they were not allowed to have fee relief or any other funding from the government. And Keating thought it was a very good idea to fund them. And admittedly, I found the figures where it showed that after Keating agreed with this, and I think the final agreement came about 91 or something when they finally started paying this stuff out, and over the next couple of years, there was quite an expansion of childcare services. But when I looked at the number of services and the number of places that they had, there were small services. It had about 30, 32 kids in them, you know, just a small, friendly, local business. And why had, I don't understand why, sorry, Eva, why had they set up, like, why had these teachers or these families set up services no, when they knew that they couldn't get funding because, for them? Because they were mostly set up before these centres had been going for a long time. Because there was no federally funded childcare and because the, place, the only childcare services that were being run at that stage were uh, Kindergarten Union and Sydney Day Nursery. There were no oh, really other right. things. A lot of people set up small businesses that yep. provided the childcare that was lacking. So they were really, most of them had been there for a long time. They were just neighbourhood people who decided to run this. They ran them, you know, they, they made a small profit out of it, but they really ran them for their own pay, you know, and because they wanted a job sort of thing and there weren't many jobs in the area. But they were small centres. That's why I just quoted the money, you know, they had about 25, 30 kids and, you know, they got registered by the state welfare system and you know they did a reasonable job there was something but anyhow so they got funded but then after that you know the because we had the whole dreaded neoliberal stuff uh you started getting business people thinking wow government funding for community services and you had the scandal of abc childcare, where somebody set up this enormous range of services and bought, ripped people off, ran up huge, it's, ran an overseas thing, and they were called ABC Childcare, I can't remember, had just had hundreds of childcare centres set up, was building them all over the place where he'd get cheap land, was sort of lease, leasing them out, so making, and making a total mess of it. He was running very badly funded, badly staffed, badly run childcare centres, but things were pretty chaotic at these days and he put up an awful lot of them until it finally blew up. He went bankrupt, I think. And they he also bought a lot the... of those small services that you're talking about yes, out. Yes, he did. He bought, bought yes, he did. So, you know, and he had this... He was making a motter of money out of it. Anyhow, I think the well, government was fine. Was he or like was nine... it all on paper? I'm not sure if he actually did make a lot of money out of it. I think it looked like he was oh, making he a lot of money a lot out of, of it. Money I mean, in, yeah. when, in the final analysis, he had 900 centres that the, that the government sort of had to do something with. So, you know, so the government was stuck with this. And instead of doing anything sensible, they decided that they were going to actually, this was, you know, uh, I think this was, the, the, this was under the Howard government, that, uh, that the most of this sort of occurred, that the demolition occurred in the late 90s. And they decided, went to, you know, he went bankrupt, the centres were left there, they were worried about it, they tried to run it, they set up various groups to sort of do it, they tried to 
sell them off or see if anybody wanted to take them over. Nobody really did because they were all in a terrible mess. And finally, they set up uh, what are they called? The uh, good start. Good, good start. start and good. Good Start is a, I don't know all that much about it. I think they're trying to do the right thing. They're a not-for-profit thing. They have about, what's it, about 800 services. They're still a bit, one of the biggest suppliers in Australia because they basically took it over and started running it as a not-for-profit sort of thing. But it really, to many degrees, is still very much like the for-profit ones. They just don't make money on it and try and do things in a reasonable manner. But you still have basically something that's being run as a huge enterprise. And that's one of the problems I've got with childcare. And I'll get back to the original ideas. When we set up childcare services, we saw them very much as community services. We saw them as embedded in the communities. In fact, when they set them up in Melbourne, Winter Makaki, who was one of the early childcare people down there, and I had a fight because I was talking about possibly setting up some work-related ones because I was working with people that were think, interested in doing things like ones that were available in TAFEs and various other places for the workers and so on. And Winsome didn't agree with that at all because she thought they ought to, to be community childcare and she set up something called community childcare services, which she got a whole lot of centres going. But there was very much that philosophy that childcare should be in a sense, owned by the community, part of the community, not-for-profit, linked in with other people, part of, this, of the whole setup of the community. And here we were suddenly left with the fact that they'd become a, an industry. And it was on then, they gradually sort of got rid of all of these things because it wasn't fair giving the not-for-profit some funding which wasn't available for the for-profit yes, centres. we needed and a, a level playing field. I remember that and term. We and we also needed competition to bring the fees down. Yep. And just on that point, in case I forget about it later, it's very interesting. I, uh, one of the things I found today when I was going through a pile of old stuff I had here was that childcare services don't drop their fees when there is an oversupply because most of them are tied to contracts and they have to meet the contract of payment. So they raise their fees when they lose yep, for sure. uh, enrollees. So, you know, that old-fashioned market fault and stuff just doesn't work for childcare. Surprise, surprise. Had, right, surprise. So what you had then is a huge increase of commercial networks of childcare centres. There's G8 and, you know, whatever, there's Guardian and... Affinity. I can't what they are, but... Yep. Yes, and uh, anyhow, so the thing that, I, that really people need to know is... The childcare was set up as a community service. It was set up by a lot of women who wanted it to be something which helped, which were part of the child rearing process where women had the right to go to work, but we did not want to see children's services set up just to allow the parents to go to work. It should never have been privatized because it should have remained part of the community. And that Winston was dead right. It's community childcare that we were running. I set up the Sydney branch of that one after having a fight with Winsome about the name and she, we agreed to do that. But unfortunately, like so many of this, these things, it has now wandered off into doing training 
for all sorts of childcare services. And we're very short, actually, of lobby groups that are prepared to push for the idea of community services being a community service. I think got quite that a lot of people have just forgotten that community services were ever community for the benefit of the community. As more and more, yeah, not just mm, in childcare, but in yeah. in everything. Yes, yeah. and the terrible mess of disability stuff because they're insisting it's all market driven. You know, choice, choice, you know. You're supposed to always make choices. You know, a lot of people who get childcare services don't make choices. They get the only one that they can get because there's still a shortage in many years. So anyhow, just very briefly back to the model that we pushed to the ALP and that was really underpinning all of the things until Keating's desires to play the economist started opening the thing to the idea of not-for-profit for being funded. Uh, the whole idea then was to make sure that the children's services were planned and that they were sort of done in cooperation with the with other services in the area and they were funded so that, you know, they were accessible. And they were really part of the community sector. They were there to be part of the community sector. And somehow or other, this got lost because neoliberalism was taking over so many other things and people kept saying, ah, yes, but, you know, the private sector would run them more efficiently. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing is, these these services have been making very quite large profits. Why are we paying taxpayers' money to people who are sort of mainly pushing it offshore? A lot of them are offshore chains too. Somebody really needs to write a good book on these. If you read the financial review, you know, finance pages, you get some of the insights into the amount of money and what they're doing with it. That we commodified children, we commodified women because they decided, you know, our role is entirely to provide, un- to provide paid work, not unpaid work, and ignores the unpaid work. And while I'm a great supporter of the fact that women have, of course, a right to have jobs and have well-paid jobs, and if you're in childcare and don't have well-paid jobs because they assume that the skills come naturally with the hormones which they don't, um, and so therefore they're not valued in terms of what the value of what they produce. So we've got this mess now of childcare, and it's only people that are as old as me, you know, probably down to the late 40s, early 50s, that actually remember when this whole area and most of the rest of those community services area were community services run by the community for the community. But um, one of the things that I'm interested in asking you about there is, uh, do you think that we lost some of the community, um, you know, flavour of um, childcare services because of the need for um, for more and more accountability? So it became harder for parents to run services. And either they oh. went to large chains like Good Start or, you know, or mixed no, I, community organisations. 
I don't think so because the thing is that it was not so. You know that there were there were groups around that actually helped people set things up. There's no group around. I was actually inquiring that recently because somebody else was saying, you know, they thought they'd like to start a co-op for childcare, and I was desperately looking around to see if there was anybody doing it. We had quite a lot of organisations like community childcare and so on, which would help you set things up. There was a lot of support from people who wanted to set up childcare centres because I can now have spent quite a lot of time talking to people, giving them those things like that. You know, the state government people were quite helpful. The federal government people were quite helpful. I mean, their role was very much to try and get services off the ground. And it was a, a good feeling about it. Yes, it did require some things, but I, I think I think the over-bureaucratisation came when you actually ended up with the multiple childcare services. But that's neoliberalism. You see, nobody's really accused neoliberalism of being the source of much more bureaucratization than government-run or committee-run things. Because once you take it out of the hands of government, uh, quite a nice thing, uh, thing in that they had in something about trust things. You know, once, but once you remove the hands of government and the direct contributions by government and by the community and by the users... You can't trust anybody anymore, so you've got to write more rules. So the whole privatization process is built on the fact that we need rules to stop people being greedy, self-interested, and ripping us off. That's the reason we have rules. And that they, yep. they, they're, bred, they're bred out of neoliberalism. So the next time anybody tells you that, you know, that market forces are more efficient, you can tell them that we can blame them for all of the bureaucracy. <laughs> of aged care, and it doesn't work, as we've found out recently with the Royal yeah. Commission, you know, child care we found out with all sorts and of things And we're about there. to see it with NDIS as well. And the NDIS where they sort of have all of these choices, but it leaves people that aren't very good at choosing out on a limb, and then we've got all these other little ripple things that are trying to work that out. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've encouraged people with greed to take things over. And then we've put a lot of rules there so that they don't do anything so outrageous that they end up in jail. <laughs> but, you know, we've lost it. But then we treat childcare as though it's dry cleaning. I always think of that sort of thing. You know, you drop your kid off and then you pick them up when they're, you know, at the end of the day. And people, one of the things that people, of course, also don't realise that, I mean, the whole idea of the market is based on competition. But how many people are going to move their child out of a childcare centre when they've already made friends with the other children, where you've made friends, hopefully, with some of the staff, and where you feel the child is actually enjoying it just because somebody down the road's going, uh, road's going to offer it for $5 a day cheaper? You know, we don't shuffle children around that. That's, you know, that's also a wrong model. I, I, I always think that that's one of the, the biggest signs that it's a lot of the politicians making decisions about it are men because they, like most mothers, understand that you can't just change a child from a childcare centre, whereas the men don't seem to understand that it's not, you know, quite done like well, that. They don't spend much enough time with the children to realise that, you know, that yeah. <laughs> they have needs that are not sort of met and dumping them off at a childcare centre which doesn't work very well is uh, not a good idea. I think maybe after the last few weeks and they spent some time at home with the kiddies, they might have noticed. But anyhow, we've had this slow rot over the last few years. And unfortunately, I think the women's groups that should be out there fighting some of these changes don't. 
they tend to shrug their shoulders and say, this is the way it is. Well, it's this way because it's happened this way and it's also failing. If you look at what's happening with the childcare services, I mean, they're all in a panic now because once they remove some of this, this, this whole version of free childcare worked very well for the, you know, for the business side of it. It had to be actually adjusted constantly to try and get most of the not-for-profits in because they didn't fit the model. You know, the model was designed for small for business type things where you could sort of show you'd lost money and then you know they just paid the fair, paid the part of the uh, wages of most of your staff, except if you had staff from overseas that didn't fit the thing. But it was very much a business model, and now they're withdrawing it again because they it was quite expensive and anyhow they don't need it anymore because oh, you know lots of the women now unemployed and we're over the worst of the of the uh, diseases and so therefore we don't need the women who are the nurses and the various other things which is what was sending them into a panic was all of these healthcare and education workers that uh, would need to stay home the childcare service is closed and they you know needed it to fix the actual healthcare type stuff but now they're back so i suppose and what i'm doing is i'm sort of talking to the you know the era group which is all the women's groups to try and say look we need to start working on this from a feminist base and not a feminist base because it's all about women but from a feminist base because it is about the undervalued areas of society which are undervalued because they're about women and childcare is a very good example of that that's why it's underpaid that's why it's undervalued that's why people there's a turnover in childcare services because the pay rates get people to leave the jobs even though they love them you know all of that's left there and we've got this mess going on at the moment where we have an oversupply of childcare in some areas particularly where there's cheap uh, land that you can build on because they build the childcare centres where the land is cheap not where the children are which is actually means that sometimes you have an oversupply in some areas particularly where they're new developments and an undersupply in areas where it's expensive or else extremely expensive childcare. We've got a couple of those around Glebe where they charge 200 bucks a day or whatever it is. And you get Egyptian cotton sheets or in French lessons or something, you know? I mean, it's, it's become quite ridiculous. And I just think we need to come together and start saying neoliberalism has stuffed things up and we know it's stuffed things up. Unfortunately, one thing that seems to have stuffed up is most of the progressive side of politics because we don't have a decent Labour Party policy on this stuff. The Greens are a bit confused on it too. They're not very clear about what exactly what they're on about. And it's left to people like us to sort of stick our necks out and say, excuse me, you're undermining society. You're undermining the next generation of kids who are being sort of not maltreated completely, but not getting the type of childcare they deserve. And we need to do something about it. We need to actually start saying to women and men, you know, if you want your children to grow up with the best sort of care, you need to have a say in how their services are run. You need to be part of the process of making sure that there's enough services that, you, that your kids will get their share of good care and their education and activities. But nobody's out there saying it at the moment. You and me and about three others, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Well, that, that's probably uh, either a good segue. And one of one of the reasons I was, I've, I've, it's been you know a privilege to hear you talk about the history of the advocacy battles for uh, a lot mm. of the the big milestones we've had in in the sector. And I often think one of the issues with turnover in the sector is that there's not a there's not a long there's not many people that have a big lived history at the sector a lot of a lot of people working in the sector you know have probably only worked since you know 2012 with the introduction of the national quality framework yeah. so so for some people that kind of is their entire world but you know we're facing the you know all those advocacy battles you're talking about right now and I think you're right as advocates we're really struggling to um, to articulate a particular message about the the social good of early education, I guess if you mm. think back to some of those incredible you know wins in, and and forward progressive um, motions that we've had in early education uh, over the last you know since the nineteen seventies, what do you think you know I guess what are the big lessons for you from advocacy or what, what do you think? those where you've succeeded back then what do you think was important about those successes then that we need to sort of listen to now and be doing similar things now well one that i think is really important and we haven't noticed it is we were optimists we thought we could do it we had a, a labor government for the first time that was interested in some of those things there was all the social movements like the women's movement and you know the peace movements various other things there was everything but it was a different sort of politics it wasn't protest politics it was politics with a very firm sense of what we want at the moment what we've got is protest politics they run around organizing campaigns but they don't actually come up with solutions and this is you know, some of the stuff that's going on now, they've got that huge conference, what they call themselves, that Australian Progress Group. But if you go through the agenda, it's full of people sort of talking about how do you organise a campaign, how do you write your messages, how do you get people, get publicity, all of the functional type stuff. And when you say to them, yes, but what are you campaigning for? They say, oh, it's up to the people's movement. You know, they've got the sort of post-Marxist uh, American organizing post-Obama idea that if you organize things, the people will come up with solutions. And I keep sort of quoting what happened in, in 1917 is because that's an original Marxist view is, you know, the revolution comes from below. There was a huge argument in the Communist Party and when the Communists took over in 1917, they didn't know what to do next because they'd only worked out how to get, you know, to... <laughs> Organize. Not the, uh, yes, <laughs> they hadn't actually made any plans, so they had to retrieve Lenin, who they'd exiled to Switzerland, who came across Germany in a sealed uh, train. There's actually a film about it called Hedge of the World, I think it is. And Lenin, who believed, and I believe, it's the only part of Lenin that I do believe in, he said, if you want change, you need a vanguard who comes up with the ideas and works out how to get there. And that's what we're lacking at the moment. So how do we get one? I don't know. I don't know. I've tried Get Up. I've tried all of the groups, and they're all wandering around talking about people's movements. We need to make solutions. I have no problem about the fact that they organize campaigns. I just want to put the content into the campaigns. And one of the content areas is community is anti-privatization because it just doesn't work, particularly for community services. Let's get back to the community. 
We have voters who but, are pessimists. Eva, you know, when 70% of the sector is now run by for-profit childcare centres, when the biggest advocacy groups are the providers, not, you know, anyone uh, representing the, the child or the community-based providers, then how, like, that feels like such a big ask to go back to asking for... You know, no prov- uh, you know, profit motive in the sector. You know, you know, you know, you know what we do? <clears throat> and I tried this out on the Labour Party some years ago when Kate Thingley was running it and she just, just wasn't interested. You only have to do one thing. You have to say, we want to have an efficient, effective, blah, blah, blah. You can use some of their language children's services system and we don't have one at the moment because we do not have which most overseas countries have is a direct uh, funding agreement between the funder and the provider all our funding currently goes via the user you know the well, customer. it's it's interesting actually because this is the first time in history for for a long while that we actually do it have is- a funding agreement between the government and um, services and to watch the contortions that the government had to do to put that in place. So when the COVID funding first came in, the emergency relief plan, they first mm-hmm. of all had to stop the all the legislation that was around setting up, uh, providing yeah. funding to parents. And so they managed to do that. They just absolutely stopped it functioning they've been having practice we can now tell them what the radical idea is then but but hang on Eva what they then did was when they wanted to bring back the subsidy for parents that couldn't exist simultaneously with a way of giving services money and because they still needed to give services some money a 25% payment what they did was they converted that into a funding stream that already exists called the Community Child Care Fund. Interesting words, Community <laughs> Child Care Fund. Very interesting, yeah. And as part of that, they put two conditions or three conditions on, on services. One was that they um, not increase their fees above what they mm-hmm. were in February. So, so if mm-hmm. services are to receive that funding, they have to in- agree to have the same fees that they had in February of 2020. Oh, that um, yeah, that's an interesting bit. <laughs> then they had to agree that they would keep um, their employee numbers the same as what they were. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, two weeks after they announced the the funding package. Yeah. So that allowed the big providers to shed a few staff in the interim. And then when it came down to it, the condition in the funding um, was that it was only that you had to keep um, staff on it one shift or more per week. So it was hardly saving Mm -hmm. jobs. But, you know, it looks like it was. was. It looks like it does, yes. Yeah, and I've forgotten what the the other one was, but I thought this is really interesting. For the first yeah, time, they've, they've realised yes. that there's some advantages in having in funding, funding conditions. Yeah. 
And I think we can start working on that if we're smart enough. We can probably even find some liberal women who will actually appreciate that and start talking to them about getting the government to have direct funding. Hang so on, that we can liberal make sure women? Liberal women? Liberal. I'm sorry, I can't understand that term, liberal and women, in the same term. You mean there are there some are liberal some. women? There's, there's, yes, of course there are. And actually on childcare, on child care, they've actually not been bad. Yes, I know. Don't forget Beryl Beaurepaire was a sort of liberal in many ways and she did pushed a lot of stuff up in the early childhood things. It's one of the areas that liberal women actually quite like because quite a lot of them were involved in things like the kindergarten union and so on. You've got a conservative, genuinely conservative, not neoliberal, the small L liberals who do believe in the fact that they, you know, these should be community services. It's one of the areas where there is a things that we just have, to, unfortunately, most of them... But I'm quite sure that people like Julie Bush Bishop might well be interested, you know, because they've got that sort of background and now they can speak out. So, And, and I think we need desperately to convince the Labour Party. They're the ones I tried to convince and they just won't do it because they keep thinking, oh, we'll have to spend all this extra money on childcare because there is a lot of it there. But if they start controlling the price and controlling the locations to make sure they're where they ought to be, you're going to get an awful lot of, you know, uh, fire sales of uh, quite cheap childcare centres, which can be bought up by community groups and various other things because they'll stop making money, won't they? <laughs> so, okay, if so, we were to start a revolution, back, how would you do it? You know, what would you I first think we would, do? We, I think we would sit down carefully with, with people who know what happens now and know what the system is and and how we can sort of bend it while they're still rather confused about what's going on and gently try and sort of get to some of the younger women and some of the ones that may well listen and some of the independents in the cross benches to say, this is a really good example of why we need to have some of these community services appropriately controlled. You see, aged care, they do control the fees. Yeah, it's but they not don't unusual. control the quality, do they? No, that's, 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 that's the other problem. But being able to control the fees, I think, and, you know, would send an awful lot of people who think they're going to make a mozza out of this out of the system. Yeah. Because if they can't, if they can't, if they can't sublet the premises at a high cost and get lots of people to give them high rents, it's not going to be a very attractive uh, investment. We just have to try and make it a, a lousy investment. We have to start talking about the fact that well, why are taxpayers paying all of this money to overseas shareholders? Do a bit of sort of nasty, you know, foreigner hating of the of that sort, you know. How many of them are registered in the Bahamas? <laughs> but I think that's the way to go is to say, all right, you know, what we want to make sure the children... Hmm? How, can, how can we capitalise on the fact that a lot of very well-off women um, and business women's business groups are saying this doesn't work? I think we go and talk to them about why it doesn't work. And right. why, why we need to get back to the idea, you know, that the, the centres should be built where they're needed. They should be funded appropriately so that people can afford them. 
but not to the level where they produce large profits for overseas things. And, you know, we need to make sure that they, you know, that the women who are there have a certain level of stability and decent pay, so they stay there. These are, these are not terribly radical proposals. They're the sort of proposals that vaguely communitarian conservatives will also find it. It would be very interesting to work out where they send their children. I bet they send them very often to the, you know, the community ones. We, and we know that community centres have long waiting lists and a lot of the private ones don't. So we can actually start digging up as much as we can to prove that they're not really good investments. I mean, that's how we get out of it. You we make it ban. sound so easy. <laughs> well, it would, it would, it would be, it would be if we had a government that was prepared to sort of get their heads out of their bum. I can't, can't. I don't know what connections you've got with the Labour Party. We need the unions on side, and the trouble with the bloody unions is that they represent the women that work in the uh, in the private services as well. So that makes yeah. them a bit wimpy about some of this stuff, you know. But if we can convince convince them that you know the union could, unions could go out and instead of bloody you know get some of these their, you know how all these superannuation people are buying up some of the other privatized stuff, well they can buy these bloody childcare centres up. We can have them all right, you know. Well, I think but, that's a, a great campaign fund. slogan. Yeah. What, buy, buy, up the bloody. buy the bloody buy the bloody childcare centres up. I like it. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think I think we should actually push that for the uh, you know because all the unions have got all this money they need to invest. <laughs> and I, I, the different starting point than I thought we might have got to, but I but you know there's uh, bringing people together. I think with multiple interests will be yeah I think has to be has to be part of the solution. Yeah, but I mean what we're trying to say is that our multiple interests are not being met by a whole lot of overseas companies that are sort of squiggling away large amounts of profits and running not particularly good childcare services, not in areas where they're needed and not for the hours that are needed and not for the age groups that are needed. You know? That's a problem we've got. They, they, that that's something that's fairly easy to sell to people that overseas equity yeah. funding funds shouldn't be making money out of Australia, the education and care of Australian children. But I've been yeah. pushing that one for a decade or more and no one's that interested. No, but if we also sort of point out some of the other sort of flaws in the system and how the fact is a lot of people are really discontented and all of this is blowing up in 50 directions, and I suspect a lot of them will not recover necessarily from this because there's going to be a lot of women who will lose their jobs and there will yep. be far lesser demand. So it's a time to sort of actually start sort of getting in when they're more likely to be in trouble because people will stick longer to the not-for-profits where they feel they belong than they will for the for-profits, you know? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, and I just, I just, I, I think we can run quite a reasonable campaign just running it on those sorts of things that we want to get back to the idea. And I think that, that people would respond to that, that these are community services. I don't think even conservative women really want to send their children to something that they, that's Oh, of course quality. they don't. Yeah, but now we seem to have people developing a separate, like, layer of centres just for, uh, you know, better paid women or better paid families, you know, like there's chains of luxury services now. 
I know, but a lot of them I don't think are very good services. They just offer luxury sort of additional <laughs> bits. And I think a lot, and I think quite a few of the mothers can work that one out. You know. Yes. <laughs> you have been listening to the Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jarzar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.